You're listening to the Fashion Your Passion podcast. My name is Sammy Reyes, and as a college student and entrepreneur, I'm always looking for a little more passion in my life. On this podcast, my guests and I will teach you the tools to help you fashion your passion. Let's get to it. Welcome to episode 108. I am here today with celebrity makeup artist and CEO of Pretty Girl Makeup, Christina Flock. Welcome to the show, Christina. How are you? Hi, nice to meet you. You as well. Can you tell my listeners a little bit more about who you are and what you do? Well, I am a celebrity makeup artist and I am CEO. I am also a mother of five. I am also a sepsis awareness advocate and evidently I am told a grief expert. Got it. I also am a philanthropist, I would say as well. I raise money for two foundations for my husband and my son and a garden that's named after my son, Bo. Absolutely. I want to first dive into how you built your business from the start, from the get-go. A lot of what we talk about on this show is sort of showing high school and college students that there is a lot of work that goes into building things. There is a lot of work that being an entrepreneur, like there's a lot of work that goes into that. So talk to me a little bit about first how you became a makeup artist and then sort of how you built Pretty Girl Makeup as well. I started doing makeup in a very kind of unconventional way. My mother was diagnosed with brain cancer when I was very young. And she was going out to dinner one evening with my father. And I said, oh, mom, let me help you get ready. So I got her makeup. She didn't have a ton of makeup, but I used what she had. And miraculously, she looked significantly better. And more importantly, she felt so much better. So it really was impressive to me not what I had done, but how I made her feel. And so that always kind of stuck with me. And I did makeup for my friends and family for different events. And I became a personal shopper and an image consultant and continued with doing the makeup. And then a photographer asked me to do a shoot once and it was photographed. It was in a magazine and it just kind of started from there. And I thought, I really like doing this. This is fun. And it became my passion. And what I tell people, what I've told my children that are in college and out of college is that figure out what you love doing so much that you would do for free and then figure out how to get paid. And I think it's super important if you are going to start your own business or work for yourself that you really love what you do because I didn't make very much money at the beginning. I make really good money now. My day rate is really great. But again, I don't work every day being a makeup artist. So I have my company, which is really great. I have pretty girls. So I work days I'm not on a shoot. I'm working like today in my office. I am working on my company. And so that's just kind of how it started. And then I got an agent. I got signed with Ford in New York as a makeup artist. And it kind of snowballed from there. And I got like my first celebrity and then was in magazines. And it just kind of happened pretty organically over time. I've worked really hard though, I have to say. I've worked for free a lot, as I mentioned. I've done a lot of shoots doing more than I had intended to do. I've been a stylist. I've helped photographers do things. I do a lot. It's a lot more than just bringing your makeup kit and painting someone's face. I have to make sure that they're hydrated and that they've had food and that they're in a good mood when they get out there. So I sometimes will start with aromatherapy oils, massaging their hands, just, you know, if they have a headache, I try to get them in a really good happy place. So when they get in front of the camera, they can do what they need to do. And I think a lot of the time in the service industry, it's a lot of 
word of mouth, organic sort of like, oh, so-and-so said this about you and like now I want to like hire you for X or Y or whatever it is. And so I think a lot of the time these like solopreneur ventures, if you will, are just sort of grown by, like you said before, that snowball effect. Definitely. But what was it that inspired you to create Pretty Girl Makeup? And what was that process like? You had been doing makeup for, I'm assuming, multiple years at that point. Just talk about that and that process. Well, it's so interesting. I have another client, Kara Golden, and she is the CEO of Hint Water. And she is always speaking about how she had a problem and she resolved it and started her company. And that's kind of how mine was. I was a mom driving all over with kids and drinking tons of water and applying lip gloss. And it was just a constant battle that I was never winning. It was driving me crazy. I drink water, put on lip gloss all day long. And so then I thought, you know, I'm going to create my own lip gloss. How hard could it be? And ignorance is bliss because it was good. I didn't know how much time and effort and money it was going to take. So I formulated it with a beauty chemist the lip gloss and then a lip plumper. And my friends and family were all very nice. They were all my guinea pigs. I would try it out on them. And at the time I was self-funded. And so I wanted to make sure that all my lip colors look good on all different skin tones. And so it took a lot longer than I had anticipated. It was over a year, the process. I thought it was going to be a couple of weeks and I'd be in uh, Sephora. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly wasn't that, but I would try it out on friends. I take notes, send it to the chemist. They make any changes, send it back. It just kind of went back and forth. And then once we had the formula, then we focused on the colors. And that really did take a lot longer because I wanted them to be perfect, the perfect red, the perfect bronze, the perfect gold. So it took a lot longer. But the point is, I enjoyed every minute of it. It was a really fun, interesting process and very satisfying and very gratifying. What excites you the most now about having this business and like doing all these things? I love that I have freedom to work out of my house, to still do photo shoots. My business partner, Jordan Hall, and I are teaming up with two other investors and we are creating a new company, which we're super excited about. And so I think having the experience and the resume that I have, it gives me the freedom. Well, I don't know the freedom. It gives other people they trust from the experience that I've had and the hard work I've done to invest in me. And that couldn't have happened 15 years ago or 20 years ago. So I'm very grateful that my hard work has paid off. I have worked really, 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 really hard. And I love that. And I get excited to wake up in the morning to work on my company or do interviews. On Friday, I am going to do a shoot with Vionics. It's a shoe brand. Last week, I was with the CEO of Ford Motor Cars. So it's always interesting. That's one of the gifts with purchase, I think, of my job is getting to meet different people and being in a different place. Last week when I was with Ford, we were up at the Dutton Ranch in Sebastopol. And it's this beautiful winery and farm. So I'm always going somewhere interesting and different. You know, Sometimes I'm in LA doing a TV show or it's always different. So I like that. I'm a little bit of a gypsy, I think. No, absolutely. It's the same thing with the podcast. I've met people from every walk of life, from almost every section of the world, really. For me, what it is, is like just hearing these people's stories and how they've taken what they've been dealt with and sort of built wildly successful businesses, or they've built a life for themselves that they say they would have never imagined when they were in high school or in college is just so 
inspiring for me. And I want to ask you a little bit about your advocacy and like how you got into that. Just walk us through that journey of, I guess, also you becoming a philanthropist too. It's so interesting. If you would have asked me at 20 years old, if I'd be a CEO, I probably didn't even know what a CEO was or a makeup artist. I didn't think you got paid to do that type of work or a philanthropist. It's so interesting how life has evolved. And I am definitely not at all what I expected I was going to be. I don't even remember what I thought I would be, but I certainly didn't think I would be this, but I'm glad I am. I was married to Ken Flack. He was the number one doubles tennis player in the world with his partner, Rob Seguso. They won a gold medal in Seoul. They were on the Davis Cup team, won multiple Wimbledons. We were married for eight years. And very sadly, in March of 2018, he passed away from sepsis. Ken and I had no idea what sepsis was at the time, which it is an infection of the blood. And so he got a cold. It turned from bronchitis into pneumonia. His doctors at Kaiser Permanente did not see him. They prescribed cough medicine with codeine and an inhaler and no antibiotic. So his infection overnight went from being terrible to him spitting up blood and me rushing him to the emergency and him being put on life support in less than 14 hours after he has called his doctors. And so sepsis is an infection of the blood that attacks all your vital organs. Ken, when he was on the life support, all his organs started shutting down. And four days later, we had to take him off life support, which was just unfathomable to me. The Sepsis Alliance contacted me because of who Ken was. They wanted to know if I'd be willing to raise awareness for sepsis using Ken's image and to honor Ken, because I don't want anyone to feel what I feel, my kids feel, or Ken's kids feel of losing him. He was such an extraordinary person. And so I was not very comfortable before being in front of the camera because I'm a makeup artist. I'm behind the camera. I like make everyone pretty and then going and hiding and drinking my tea. So I think after you have these things that happen in life, you go through post-traumatic shock, but I feel like I've had some post-traumatic growth. And for me, being comfortable to be in front of a podcast or a TV or a radio show, speaking about these things and not trembling. I remember years ago, I was on The View and I remember I was so scared and terrified. My leg was shaking so much that I thought, oh my gosh, I don't even know how I'm going to get through this. I was like paralyzed with fear. And so now it's so interesting. I've done so many of these interviews. I'm really comfortable speaking about all these different things of my life, whether it being a CEO, a mother, a widow, grief, different things that I had never thought that I would be comfortable speaking about. Absolutely. And I want to commend you for continuing to bring awareness to all of this, because I know a lot of people who, when they lose a loved one, they're not as adamant publicly. I mean, I guess it differs a little because of who he was, but I think in general, a lot of people are not willing to talk about it as much as you are, or not willing to really, for whatever reason that someone passed away for, it is so inspiring to look at someone and be like, they're actually living out someone's legacy or they're actually doing the things that like their loved one wanted them to do. For me, it just, it makes me speechless, honestly, because I can't even form the words. Oh my gosh, that's so nice. Well, my husband would always be happy if I was talking about him. He always said he married me because I loved him more than he loved him, which you couldn't (laughs) believe. (laughs) I love that. He's really funny. So everyone grieves differently. And normally I am a very private person, but that aspect of my life, I feel 
when you're married to someone that is famous or was famous, it's not always just about, oh, well, we're getting free tickets to Wimbledon or we get to go to an event because of who he was. You kind of have the obligation in this case of if I can help others to not have as much loss of life from a disease like sepsis, then that's my obligation. And I've told my kids that we've started two educational funds at the Northern Light School, one for my son, Bo, who passed away on Christmas Day from SIDS and one for Ken. And we started a garden at the Ed McGuire School. It's an outdoor classroom and garden for my son, Bo. And I feel like it makes me feel happy. I'm very passionate about nutrition and about education. And so if I can teach kids from a young age about eating an apple or growing a tomato or cooking with it or doing science experiment, that makes me feel really good. And I feel that if kids from a young age are shown how to grow vegetables and eat healthy or making a healthy choice, then it's important to me because I feel like they're going to have a better life. And my son, Ben, who was Bo's twin, has for the past five years, he's a golfer. He's a freshman in high school, but he's a golfer. He plays competitively. He's one of the top juniors in California. He has gone on a golf hole and raised money for his twin and his dad's foundation. And he last October raised $36,000, which is really extraordinary because three children are going to be able to go to private school for a year, which changes lives and communities and trickling down hopefully the world. And I also feel that all my children have helped in some way at the Northern Lights School, whether it be helping with a teddy bear tea or the golf tournament or helping kids read. I think their whole life, they will be helping others because that's just something that they learn to do from a young age. I think if they're taught that, they're set the example that we try to help others and it's important. I absolutely love that. And I mean, they learned it from you. So it's, again, commendable. But I really want to talk a little bit about Obviously, you've suffered a lot of loss, but you still have businesses that are going on. What was life like? I guess just navigating it all. I mean, again, like we said before, people usually don't see behind the curtain. They just think everything's fine and dandy. People get over things, but that's not the case. No. Grief lasts forever. It does. It's so interesting that you say get over because you're right. You don't get over losing someone that was so special. You learn to manage, you learn to maneuver the grief. And so I think I have learned to be, my daughter Melania taught me. It's so interesting what your kids teach you. I mean, my daughter's 28, so it's not like she's a baby or anything, but she (laughs) said to me, mom, you just have to be grateful for the time you had with daddy. You just have to, you can't be angry or bitter about it. And she was absolutely right. And even with Bo, he was only four and a half months old when he passed away. I'm grateful I had those four and a half months with that baby. And I feel great that I'm able to help other children get an amazing education to honor Bo and Ken. So everyone grieves differently. My way isn't the only way. It's the right way for me. But for example, my ex-husband, Bo's biological father, he is very, very hyper private. And he would never come and speak on a podcast. And he really doesn't want to be involved with my foundations or the garden. And it doesn't mean he's not proud or that he wants to honor it. It's just so painful for him that he doesn't want to do that. And it used to really, really offend me that he wouldn't get more involved with the garden or the foundations. But I really realized that it's just so painful to him that he really can't. 
He's doing it the way he wants. And it's not right of me to tell him how to grieve because everyone's going to do it in a different way. And so that's one thing that I've learned in the last four years is letting people grieve the way they want. He probably thinks it's obnoxious that I go and talk about our private life all the time on these things. But he doesn't tell me not to. And I know he's proud of me, but I'm sure it baffles him as to why I would do this. 100%. Yeah. And I definitely agree. Everyone is different and they're going to heal in their own ways. And at first, it may not seem like it's quote unquote the right way or you don't understand it. But over time, you see like, oh, everyone actually is different. They're doing their own thing. And that's what I have to let them do. Right. And I think also it's important for people to, I don't know, I feel like you can grieve in a positive way. And that's how I choose to do it. But I also was imagining, and I guess this is kind of how the grieving in a positive way or grief expert started was because I was envisioning my husband speaking to me. I was on a hike out in the hills one day and I could hear him saying, it's killing me watching you lying in bed at night crying. And I thought, wow, how would I feel if I was watching him in bed crying at night or my kids or my friends over me? Because he can't comfort me the way he did when he was here. So I thought the best thing that I can do is honor him and try to lead a happy and productive and positive life. That's the only thing that I can do so he can look down on me and know like, okay, she's okay. It's not that I don't miss him because I do or wish he was here because I do. But I also have my mental health affects my children, affects my business partner. It affects a lot of people. So I really don't have that luxury of losing my shit even though I want to sometimes, but I know that when I'm feeling like that, I am too tired or I'm hungry or I'm thirsty or I haven't exercised. So if I kind of have to think some days I'm having a hard time, I'm like, okay, what have I not done today? Oh, I didn't work out. Oh, I didn't eat. Didn't get some fresh air. So I've really learned to, and I think that would be my best advice for anyone that is at the beginning process of grieving because it is so shocking. It's like, how did this happen? How did my person die? He was just here would be to just be kind to yourself and know you're doing the best you can. And it's going to take a long time to feel normal. I just kept remembering, I would say to everyone that was near me, when am I going to feel normal? When am I going to feel normal? Well, it took years to start feeling normal, but managing it with the exercise and the eating and the resting was really, really helpful. And just knowing that I remember one of my agents called and wanted to check on me the day after Ken died. And I'm always happiest when I am on set. It's like my happy place. I love it. And so I said to her, book me a job. I don't care with who and I don't care what they pay. Just get me on set. And she's like, it's too soon. And I'm like, no, just next week, I'll do it. Seven days after my husband died, I went and did a job with Third Love, which is a lingerie brand in San Francisco. And I remember thinking, oh, as soon as I get there, I'll feel normal. And guess what? I got there and I didn't. I felt awful. I'm like, oh my God, what have I done? How am I here? And when is this day going to end? I broke down crying. I really tried to keep it together, but it was just the worst day on set ever. And I thought, okay, I am not ready to be out in public. It's going to just take me a while. I had no idea when I would start feeling normal again. I really didn't. I remember I couldn't sleep either. Ken was my ambient. I would smell his neck, kiss him goodnight and fall asleep. Like three whiffs of his neck and I'd be like, oh, I'm out. And I couldn't sleep. 
And I would walk around my house till I was about to pass out. And I'd wrap one of his shirts around my head because, oh, I could smell him. And that was the only way I could sleep. Those first, I don't even remember, month or two, or I don't know what. It was sad. When I look back at me, then I just think like, oh my God, you poor soul. This is so sad. It was tragic. Yeah. You only know so much when you're in the moment. And then afterwards, you look at it and you're like, what the hell? Yeah. In that moment, it's like you literally don't know anything else. You don't. I think I am so used to controlling and fixing and making things better. And I couldn't. And nothing was going to fix that other than time. It was just going to take time to heal and learn a new life because my kids had all gone to college except for Nikolai was still in high school and Ben was in fourth or fifth grade. And so I was trying to maneuver being like an empty nester and a widow. It was like, this is just too much. My daughters were, one was in London, one was in New York. And I just thought, okay, the world is just upside down. I'm glad it's passed. I'll tell you that. (laughs) I bet. Yeah, for sure. It is a lot. You feel guilty for like spending too much time because you're like, I have to get back to work. I have to do X, Y, and Z. I have to attend to my kids. But also it's like you're not in the mental capacity to do so. Yeah, but you know, it's kind of like you don't even know you're not in the mental capacity. You think you are. I think you're doing the best you can do and you just have to be kind to yourself. And that's one thing that I've really learned is my friend Diana had said to me, I wish you would treat you the way you treat everybody else. Mm -hmm. You would never be this harsh on anyone on the planet the way you're beating the crap out of yourself. And it's really ridiculous. And I thought, wow, she's totally right. So I started working with therapists and healers and clairvoyants and I would talk to everybody. I was just trying to get answers to why this happened, how this happened, and when I was going to feel normal again. What would your best advice be to someone who has sort of had their quote unquote allotted time of what they can in terms of staying home and being with family and stuff like that? And now they have to enter back into the workplace. They have to go and do their job and stuff like that. What would you say to someone who's like, I don't know how I'm going to take this on? That is a really good question. And I've never been asked that, but I like it. Okay. I think my best advice would be this. Just take one step at a time. And I think that's why I am very, very disciplined. I wake up every morning. I have a green juice. I take vitamins. I work out. You kind of have to do that. You kind of need to set yourself a little schedule of what time you're going to wake up and what you're going to do. You're going to eat. You're going to just kind of have it planned out so you're not figuring out what to do. It's all written down. You're going to wake up, you're going to have breakfast, clean up your house, and you're going to go to work. You're going to take a little walk during a break. So if you kind of plan out your day and make sure that there's some snacks and some water and maybe something fun at the end of the day, like meeting a girlfriend or getting your nails done or going to a yoga class, whatever. I think that is the best way. I think just starting to live little by little again and knowing that If you're a mother or you have children, your mental health really does affect them. So you really do go speak to a therapist, get into some grief counseling or get into a grief group, whatever feels good for you, but you need to do something. You just can't be stagnant and just live in the past and be angry. The past, it's gone. It's done. The only thing you can do now is to make the best of your life that you can and show your kids that I had to show my kids that I was going to get up 
and function again. And it was hard. It really was. But every day it got a little bit easier. Every day I did a little bit more. Every day I started to find my happy again. And then guess what? I got on a photo shoot and it actually felt normal again. And so you will get to that place. You're going to find your new normal. My old normal was going on a photo shoot or working on whatever and coming home and having a glass of wine with Ken and a really yummy dinner. And then I wasn't. So I had to create my new normal. And I've done that. I absolutely love that advice. I think routine is so important. And even for people who aren't the routine sort of type, I feel like you need to add that in, especially when you're in the headspace that you are and you don't really know sort of what to do with yourself. You kind of need that little bit of structure, I think. Exactly. It's really going to help you. And it's probably best to do your scheduling midday for the next day when you're not too tired. And just even if it's always this like wake up and going to bed at the same time. What helped me a lot was I remember I started taking like sleeping pills and then they weren't working. So someone had suggested to me doing the Calm app and I turned on some meditations and that really helped to stop my head from spinning. I remember at night before I would go to bed, I just couldn't calm my mind down. And that's why I couldn't sleep because my mind was flying like a gajillion miles an hour. And so when I learned to meditate, which I thought 30 seconds of meditation felt like 30 years, it was excruciating. I learned meditation is definitely a practice, but it's an incredible tool if you can just do it for a minute, do it for two minutes and just keep every day doing a little bit more. It will help calm you. It's really important to have a routine and making sure that you have healthy food in your refrigerator. Here's another huge thing, asking for help. I am so blessed that I had all these amazing people. They were all angels that would cook for me. They would show up, put food at my front door. My friend Trudy, she's Irish, and she made this amazing Irish soda bread. And she would drop it at my front door. And that was all I ate for a month was this bread because that's all I could get down. And I was so incredibly grateful to her that she just would show up with this. She was like my bread angel. (laughs) And she would show up with this great bread. It was so delicious. And it's so interesting. Obviously, all my friends and family were amazing, but perfect strangers or people that I hardly knew showed up and showed me so much kindness and love. And that really surprised me. And I think there's so many people that asking for help, I think is important. Don't feel bad about it. People want to help you. They don't know what to do and they don't know what to say. And sometimes they're going to say dumb things or things that you're just like, okay, how did you really just ask me that? But For example, when my son Bo passed away, some woman came up to me at a soccer game that one of my kids was playing and said, oh, I heard your baby died. I'm so sorry. And I said, thank you. And she said, well, at least you have the other one. And my eyeballs popped out of my head. I'm like, guess what? I liked both of them. I know she didn't mean that to offend me, but it totally offended me. And I think probably because I was too tired or too hungry or too whatever, I kind of clobbered her. And I had to apologize because I know she meant well. She just said the wrong thing at the wrong time. And I wasn't really in the right headspace and I probably clobbered her. No, absolutely. It all just depends on where you are in your process and just in your day to day. That's true. I think because of who Ken was, it was more public. It wasn't the norm. And I didn't even realize, I knew he was famous and everything, but he was my husband and he was retired. So it didn't really, but then when it's like, 
oh my God, he's in the New York Times obituary and on the news and all this other stuff. And the ATP and at the Indian Wells tennis tournament a year after Ken passed, did a Ken Flat golf tournament. And then they did a video memorial of him at the year anniversary. And I remember thinking like, oh, I'll be fine. My friends, Mark and Aaron Woodford came with me and I thought, oh, this is no big deal. But then when I got in front of a stadium with 20,000 people watching that video, I just remember it felt so enormous and so huge. And I felt very exposed that all these people were watching me and watching this pain that I was feeling. That was a hard day, I remember. Do you sometimes or ever really wish that the whole thing wasn't as public as it was? That way you'd have to like deal with all of it? I probably would say, yeah, I wish it wasn't so public, but that's not my reality. My reality was I was married to someone that was famous and it was public and that was hard. And then I had sometimes some crazy people showing up at my front door and I had to call the police one time, get these two crazy stalkers away. And then I had people reaching out to me on social media and different things. So that was a little weird. I didn't, obviously, we're not the Kardashians, but it was a little intense. To say I wouldn't want it that public would just kind of like mean that I wasn't married to who I was married to. And the reality was I was married to a famous person and who had an extraordinary career. And I was so proud to be his wife. And I'm glad I was married to him. So no, I'm going to say no. It's okay that it was because that's what my reality was. I totally understand that. It was a personal curiosity, really. You have great questions. It's interesting. I do these all the time. And then typically I get the same questions. But you're really good. And you're asking questions that I don't typically answer. So thank you. I try. Bravo to you. Thank you. I just think for me, it's sometimes I'm overly empathetic. And so to hear a story like yours, it just hits me. And I think also with just personal experience of grief and loss, it's like I'm just so curious to see someone else's experience, you know, and hear sort of how they pushed through and got through it. Because for me, I didn't do any of that. Who did you lose, if you don't mind me asking? Oh, a bunch of people. Okay, well, that's another show. Yeah, I mean, it was when I was in middle school, and it was three or four people in the matter of a year. Wow. Or two years. And, like, I didn't see them every day, and, like, I wasn't, like, the closest, closest to them. Like, they weren't my immediate family. But, again, for me, being empathetic, it hits. It hits a lot harder. Well, you're very sensitive, and it affected you. And so the only thing I would say about not dealing with grief you're going to have to at some point. You can pretend. And maybe that's why for me, I had spoken with some therapists and they said, the more that you talk about it, the more that you deal with it, the sooner it's going to be that you are learning to manage it because you don't get over someone dying, you learn to manage it. And so I think the only thing I would say to you is that even if you don't deal with it, you're dealing with it every day and it's growing and growing and getting bigger because you're not dealing with it. So for me, I don't want this to go on forever, this unbearable pain. So if I can save another life by talking about sepsis or helping someone grieve, I'm going to do it because I want to help others and I don't want to feel this awful emptiness that I felt. And I think it's helped me to move on in my life and have another relationship. It doesn't mean I don't love my husband or miss him, but I want to have someone to love and to share life with. And so two and a half years ago, I met someone who's really great and makes me feel at peace. And I love him. And I 
am so grateful that I feel like Ken found him for me and brought him to me. And so I'm really grateful for that. It doesn't diminish the love. It's kind of like how I explain when people say, wow, you have five kids. Like, how do you love five people? Well, to me, I have five hearts for my five kids and I have a heart for Ken and I have a heart for my new person. He's super private, so I'm not saying his name, (laughs) but I think it's just you grow different pieces of hearts for each person and you have a big, huge heart for each one of the people that you love in your life. And I think it's important to have love. And I think I function better when I'm happy and I feel loved and not just by my person, but by my kids or my friends, I can not be distracted. I absolutely love that. Thank you so much for this conversation. I truly, 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 truly appreciate it. It was better than I could have even imagined. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you. You're so sweet. I want to roll into the final question on sort of like a lighter note, I guess you can say. Okay, yeah, we've gotten all this <laughs> I do want to say one thing. Yeah. If people want to know more about sepsis, please go to the sepsis.org website. And if they scroll down, there's a little graph that says time. And what time is, is T is for temperature. You can be very hot or very cold. I is for infection in some place in your body, whether it be an infection in your tooth or a cut, or in my husband's case, the bronchitis that turned to pneumonia. M is for mental decline. It's hard to rouse them. They're just a little foggy. And E is for excruciating pain. You feel like you're dying because you are. Sepsis is very fast, very aggressive. However, the good news is, If you think you have any of those signs, get to a doctor or an emergency, ask for a blood test because you think you might be septic. And in 20 minutes, they're going to know or less. If you are, they can put you on an IV antibiotic and you will be saved. Unfortunately, my husband wasn't saved. And so that's why time is of the essence and not to wait. It is so important. How many times do we say, oh, if I don't feel better, I'll go to the doctor in the morning. Well, guess what? With sepsis, you don't have a morning. So don't wait, get to the doctor. And if you aren't septic, great. But if you are, you want to be able to get on that IV antibiotic before it starts attacking your organs and shutting them down. 100%. That is super, super important. And I think over the years, I've definitely learned that like it's better to not put off doctor's appointments. And so that's my rule of living now. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. Yes, of course. For the final question, this question is something that I've asked every guest who has ever been on based off of the title of the podcast, which is Fashion Your Passion. What is one tip that you would give those who are dreaming based off of how you have fashioned your passion? I think it's super important to do what you love doing because what's the quote? You'll never work a day if you love what you're doing. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to figure out what you love doing. And if you're not happy with your job, change it. If you're not happy with where you live, move. You're not stuck. And sometimes it takes a bunch of different steps and turns to figure out what your right fit is. My daughter, Melania, is a fashion designer. She's known it since she was probably eight years old making clothes for her Barbie. She always knew. My daughter, Rose, went to NYU and she went to film school. She's a screenwriter. She was really clear. Those two, my daughters, were incredibly lucky that they knew what they wanted to be. And then they could just focus on that. But not everyone is that blessed. I had no idea I would be a CEO of a makeup company and a makeup artist when I was in high school. I would never have thought that in a hundred years. I think I thought I was going to be a psychiatrist or something. 
and I studied art history. It's so funny. We plan and God laughs. It's a really great book. I would recommend to everyone, whether someone has passed or not, because life happens when we're planning. It's just like we're planning something and then something happens. But we just have to trust that the universe is going to take care of us and everything will work out. I don't believe in worrying. It's such a waste of time. It's basically praying for bad things to happen. So if one thing's not working, just make a change and do something else. And maybe that was part of the process for you of, do you want to be a doctor? Well, you became a lawyer and then you became a who knows what else, but then you ended up being something else. But that was part of the process to getting there. And it's not bad. I think it's really a lot of pressure on young people to think, oh, you have to know what you want to do when you're 18 years old applying to college. How do you know? You haven't lived and you're going to experience so many different things that once you have those experiences, it might change your opinion or you're exposed to something you had no idea that you were going to enjoy being a floral arranger or who knows what. But I think that's what's so great about doing these internships. If you think you like something, be an intern for a makeup artist or in photography or whatever it is that you enjoy doing, marketing. And I think that's a really great way, a quick way of figuring out do I like doing this? And should I put more focus upon it? You said everything that I preach on a daily basis. So thank you for (laughs) saying it. So I didn't have to. We're from the same tribe, I guess. (laughs) Absolutely. 100%. Where can people find you on the web, on social, name all the places, list it all out? Okay. You can find me, prettygirlmakeup.com, buy some lip gloss. Pretty girl is a discount code, 25% off if your listeners want to buy some lip gloss. If you would like to see my portfolio, christinaflack.com, Instagram, pretty girl makeup, P-R-E-T-T-Y-G-I-R-L-M-K-U-P, or Christina Flack Makeup. And we're on Twitter, Insta, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And TikTok somewhere. <laughs> yes, all her links would be down below. So be sure to follow her, check her out, tell her that you listened to her on the podcast and yes. let her know how amazing she was today. And go to sepsis.org. Yes, yes, go yes, Go to yes, sepsis.org yes. as well to find out more about sepsis. Yes, Christina, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I so appreciate it. And for those of you who are listening, I will talk to you guys next week.